Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Colin McEnroe Show. I'm David Rose sitting in for Colin today. Lucky me, I'm excited about the show we have today. Hopefully you are too. We're going to be talking about pain, all different kinds of aspects about pain. We're going to be talking about chronic pain, acute pain, uh, people who feel pain constantly, all different kinds of things. Uh, first, we want to talk about what pain actually is. Now, we know that everybody sort of experiences pain a little bit differently. Some people uh, have higher thresholds than pain. Some people uh, have low thresholds for pain. Pain is just it's a very subjective experience. So, you know, what really hurts somebody might not hurt somebody else, and for reasons that we don't fully understand. Uh, there are cultural factors such as emotion, there's genetics involved, there are environmental factors that impact how we experience pain. Uh, but what if scientists could actually use neuroimaging to show how our brain contributes to our perceptions of pain? And joining us from Oxford in the United Kingdom is somebody who can help us f- suss through all that. Uh, that is Irene Tracy. Irene heads the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Oxford in the UK. She's also co-founder of the university's Oxford Center for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Brain Center. Irene, welcome to the Colin McEnroe Show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks thanks for the invitation, David. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. So you mentioned sort of how pain is subjective, and what you're trying to do is create a scientific map of the brain to sort of show, okay, maybe it is subjective, but also there are biological processes taking place here. So how is the work that you're doing, how is it going to help us understand pain and, and be able to really understand you know, that maybe there, there is obviously the subjective element, but maybe there is some biological processes. So tell us what you do and how that helps us understand pain sure. from, uh, in the, as it, as it, uh, within the brain. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, so so I'm sure all your listeners have experienced pain uh, in their lives, and hopefully for most people, it's just what we call good pain, right. uh, acute pain, pain you know from a short injury, burning yourself in a candle, uh, you know, a sports injury that sort of comes and goes, and it's good pain because it warns you that you've hurt yourself, so you look after the area that's damaged, or you avoid the thing that caused the pain in the first place. So most people, if they just think about a pain experience they've had, even to something quite simple, you actually do quite a lot of things. You sort of locate it, you attend, you decide whether it's mechanical or thermal, maybe is it hot or is it cutting, Mm. or is it chemical like an acid burn, and uh, you then often withdraw from it, you have an emotional reaction, and you do all that in an instant. And so that's the complex experience that we're trying to disentangle and understand. Um, it's what we call a multi-factorial or multi-dimensional experience because it has all these many elements to it. And what's been really challenging for us both at a scientific level but at a clinical level is because it's what we call a subjective experience, of course it always will be, it's what you feel as a private experience. Right. And we've got lots of different ways we can sort of gather how that might be for somebody by asking them and getting them to rate it and describe it or watching their behavior and how they might limp or, or you know, change the way that, that they're moving. 
or look at sort of, you know, if they can't talk, uh, if they're a baby or somebody anesthetized, you know, we've got other ways we could maybe see and infer what they might be doing. It's still problematic to sort of know on a, what we call a mechanistic level, what on earth is under the bonnet? What's behind that subjective experience mm. that helps explain why they're having that pain in that particular way? And that's where some of these new techniques, particularly neuroimaging, um, are coming in to help us, I sort of call it looking under the bonnet at the sort of basic underpinning engine room of what generates that what we call perception that right. experience of pain and um, and so that's what a lot of groups like mine and many groups in the states have been spending the past couple of decades trying to take what is you know one of the oldest sensory and emotional experiences that we have and something that all animal species experience because of its importance but really get a much better insight into the mechanisms that explain it and importantly what are the mechanisms that go wrong in for unfortunately one in five patients who end up in a chronic pain state where the pain's just there all the time and, and can be obviously extremely debilitating mm. so it's a huge medical health issue this sort of more chronic pain the bad pain uh, the dark side of pain if you like and um, and again what we hope is that the new science and what we're trying to do with say brain imaging will give us some insight into what's going wrong there yeah and you mentioned chronic pain and what i didn't know until we started researching this show was that it's it's such a, a widespread issue uh, among people now uh i think it's it's there are more people experiencing chronic pain in the united states than are experiencing cancer all different types of cancer more yeah. people than um than heart disease so it, it really is a public health issue that uh, and to your point because it's it's usually perceived as such a subjective thing um it's hard for people a lot of people who don't see the pain like you say when you, you talk about acute pain you can see that somebody's cut okay that hurts but somebody who's experiencing chronic pain you don't see where it comes from people have a lot of trouble uh convincing people that they're feeling this pain yeah so tell us that's a little right. bit about yeah, yeah go ahead yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, you know, because it's this sort of hidden thing. Um, there can be a lot of problems in and, and also weird, interesting cultural biases and attitudes that we have as people sort of believing, you know, somebody really in that much pain, because it's very hard to know, you know, my pain's not the same as your pain, and it never will be. Uh, and so when you can't sort of see it so obviously with the sort of, you know, tissue damage and blood and you know, guts and gore, which is always the medical model we like. We like to see damage and then we can say, all right, mm. fair enough, that probably hurts. Right. When it's sort of hidden and it's more complex, which often it is in these other diseases and disorders that cause problems inside the nerves that basically switch things on, it means when you're relying on just the person saying, I'm in absolute agony, you know, again, those biases come to play and that can be really problematic uh, for the patients and obviously very challenging for clinicians to deal with it if we don't have tools to sort of see what's going on. So chronic pain, you know, people don't, as you say, appreciate just the enormity of the problem until latterly we've been doing audits both, you know, here in Europe, uh, whilst Britain still is in Europe, um, and um, and in the USA that now we're sort of quantifying just the, the enormity of the problem, recognizing it dwarfs, you know, all these other major medical conditions. And it is now defined as one of the biggest major medical health problems that we have in the developed mm. world with not just a huge suffering for the patients, you know, one in five is a sort of minimum estimate, but a cost, you know, a huge cost to society, um, you know, 600 billion in the US alone per mm. annum, you know, for the management wow. and treatment. And, and of course, people not being able to get to work because of their chronic pain disorders so and not contributing to the economy. So this has got 
this has got the sort of, you know, the politicians and it's got, you know, policymakers uh, awake now to the problem. And of course, the opioid crisis is another issue that, that has highlighted, unfortunately, right. taken that to sort of highlight the problem. But it has. And so that's good, because it means people now are aware of just, just this hidden, this hidden burden that a lot of patients are suffering with. And tell us about a little bit more about how clinicians deal with this. So if our doctors as aware, certainly we talk about the opioid crisis as, as a result of over prescribing opioids to a lot of patients is, is a big contributing factor. Um, but are clinicians um, aware of chronic pain and, or do patients still have trouble saying or convincing doctors that this is a real thing? Like, tell me, uh, can you explain that? I think it's getting better. I yeah. mean, I think it, it's, it's definitely getting better, you know, and, and I say in the, in the sort of pain field and, and people who are pain clinicians, you know, absolutely, you know, they're very engaged with, you know, obviously the new science and that conversation between what's been discovered and, and often the clinicians obviously themselves uh, contributing to those discoveries, you know, that is improving for sure within clinical pain management, this awareness that chronic pain is something very different to what maybe triggered it in the first instance. So this idea that, you know, for a lot of chronic pain disorders, um, they are considered almost a disease in their own right. So mm. in fact, the next classification, we have this sort of every few years, this new book that comes out that classifies different diseases. And in the next iteration of that, for the first time, chronic pain will have uh, defined within it certain disorders that will be defined as a disease in their own right. So you've mm. got chronic pain now is clearly a symptom of something else. And you need to fix something else and hopefully the chronic pain will, will uh, disappear. But in certain conditions, you know, this is now a life form in its own right. And understanding that new disease and that biology of that disease and what the mechanisms are that have gone wrong is the paradigm shift that the whole field has undergone. That's very well understood, I would say, in the sort of scientific world and the pain world and the pain clinical world. It is not prevalent yet, I would say, more broadly in the medical profession and then broadly out in society. So this, this really important, but it's subtle, but it's an important distinction between acute and chronic pain being two very different things, obviously, but chronic pain also not being just a reflection of, um, you know, a symptom uh, of what caused it, but potentially having um, a lot of mechanisms that are there sustaining it, exacerbating it, converting people into it in their own right. And that's important because it's those mechanisms that we need to target. And although it's been a fairly bleak picture uh, for patients in terms of not very effective therapies over the past few decades, that new shift in the way we think about things has afforded us the opportunity to discover that new biology and come mm. up with new targets. And I would be very optimistic going forward about where we're going in this next decade in terms of being able to target now that new discovery science and um, hopefully have some very exciting, um, you know, potentially very effective therapies for patients. I mean, you sound pretty optimistic, which is, is making me feel uh, pretty good about where we're headed. But <laughs> I guess when I, when I stop and think about um, clinicians, or those are the sort of the people who are dealing around the front lines of people with pain. So yeah. you know, certainly your, people in your field who are studying this know what's happening. And, and you, you pointed to, you know, you think it's getting better, but it still seems like there still are some things that uh, that clinicians need to know. And, and, what sort of, and the fact that they don't know this, what sort of impact is that having on people? I mean, it's got to be having some sort of psychological impact on people who suffer and they're not getting the right answers when they go to the doctor. Yeah, sure. But, you know, this is something that, you know, is, is problematic, not just, I, I would say, for pain science. This is true for all, um, you know, what we call discovery science 
being translated quickly enough, efficiently enough out there. You know, and this is true for many of the different disorders, particularly the central nervous system, so things that go wrong. You know, we, we would all love to see a faster translation of that knowledge and that information and implementation of it. And you're quite right, you know, um, to point that, you know, this isn't happening quick enough and therefore there's a cost, you know, for patient, uh, you know, care in the context of that. But that, that isn't a unique problem, I'd say, to pain. That, that would be true for a lot of mm. different clinical conditions. I think in the pain space, maybe we've been, you know, a bit slow in sort of recognising uh, these distinctions and, and having the investment um, and the funding to sort of drill down what some of these uh, unique specific mechanisms are that underpin chronic pain and its maintenance. But, you know, as I say, I, I'm an optimist anyway. Um, and, uh, but I, I have seen, you know, having been in this field for the best part of, uh, you know, 20 odd years, um, there's an acceleration in these past, particularly in the past five years mm. uh, and a shift. So, and, that, and that's speeding up. And I think, you know, things that are going on at the moment in terms of large funding packages, you know, driven by NIH uh, and, you know, global consortia to address very specific problems is getting the message out there to that broader uh, medical community who are maybe not pain specialists and recognizing we've got to do something different. We've got to change the way we address this. And again, you know, the sort of tools that we we use, um, although they're not at this stage, you know, for prime time use in in a in a physician's you know patient waiting room uh, and clinic, you know, they're at least informing. Um, changes of attitudes and understanding. So right. understanding that, you know, for instance, some of the work you know, that we and others have done have really proven that factors like people's anxiety and their, you know, maybe their depression, uh, their, you know, their um, expectations, you know, these don't just influence the way they describe their pain. This actually changes through brain mechanisms, the processing of uh, those signals that the area of damage is sending in so it changes mm. in a very powerful way the physiology of that experience and it changes wow. therefore the experience and that was not understood until we had tools that could see it and prove it with experiments right. so that changes again you know that information that's getting out there by you know people publishing and giving talks and doing shows like this and, and just getting the message out is really empowering because it means that people then take as seriously those factors as the more comfortable model of where's the damage and let's just fix the thing that's sort of obviously gone wrong. It's recognizing that these slightly more, you know, ethereal, difficult to pin down factors that are very brain-based, like your emotions, like your cognitive state, your, your attentional state, the context in which you're experiencing your pain or your relief will powerfully influence the actual physiology of the processing. Mm. And because pain is this experience that the brain produces, and these are where they, they occur, this is going to have this combined effect. And therefore, we've got to treat them as seriously as the sort of um, traditional, you know, let's go and fix the thing that's, that's uh, been damaged. Right. I, I wonder, and, and you alluded to this, um, uh, if sort of the, the, um, the reason why pain studies have um, lagged behind other areas in the scientific realm um, is part of this idea, would you just describe, just sort of the subjective nature of it, the fact that there are these other factors that are involved. Um, and, and one of the things that fa was fascinating to me as we we're sort of looking into this is some of the studies you've done looking at um, placebo and anticipation and how those things mm -hmm. actually uh, influence pain. Could you talk a little bit about, um, let's start yeah, with the placebo sure. effect and, and how that sort yeah. of plays out. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, placebo, I think, has been a really, really interesting area that, that several groups have used a, a different, you know, lots of different techniques to understand it. You know, it's, it's something that we've we've known right back from Hippocrates' time and Galen, you know, this 
powerful influence that expectation can have um, on your outcome. Um, And so this has been a very well-observed phenomenon for several thousand years. It's been very well applied in medicine. We seem to have sort of forgotten actually just how good it is uh, in recent years and sort of treat it as a dirty word and as something that, again, you know, has a sense of deception and fakery because that, in effect, is how you elicit the effect is you, you sort of trick people into expecting something and then you give them the sugar pill or the saline. And part of it is this this trickery but really what you're doing in that trickery is you're changing their expectations so this is a very important um, aspect of it and that is something that is a very powerful phenomenon which of course is happening in every patient physician interaction in that therapeutic alliance there is a managing of expectations there is a there is a a handling of them, there is a setting up of them, and there is a dispelling of others. You know, patients will come in with all sorts of expectations and experiences about what drugs have done to them or side effects or what they think other physicians have told them or what they've read on Google or Wikipedia. Mm. And these are all playing out through mechanisms in the brain, and, and, and a physician will work through those, and they'll walk out the room and remember not very much of that conversation, about 30% generally, and, and that will be a set of expectations that, to a certain extent, you know, I think physicians obviously, you know, would need to recognize how much power they have over those expectations. But those expectations will really play out, again, physiologically on how well that particular, whether it's a drug or a surgical intervention, is going to work. And so um, what the science has been doing is around sort of placebo type experiments, but also just experiments, even giving a real drug like we did, but changing people's expectations has shown, again, with the sort of objective imaging data, that this powerfully changes the way signals process. So you might, I might burn you, you know, to exactly the same level, you know, I keep burning you at 50 degrees Mm. and I can give you a drug, um, you know, uh, but I might not tell you when I start the drug or I might pretend I stop the drug when I don't. Mm. And in this experiment, which is sort of describing one of the experiments we did, you know, you've been given the same pain stimulus, you've been given the same amount of drug. All I've done is sneakily manipulate your expectation when you didn't know it was on. I told you then the drug was on and then I pretended it stopped. But actually the drug was on all the time. And I Mm. can make your behavioral ratings go all anywhere I want. I can make you um, completely obliterate and and feel no analgesia to that drug because you think the drug has stopped when it has. And Mm. what the imaging tells us is, how is that happening? How is it that that sort of negative expectation where you think, oh my God, the drug has stopped now, it's gonna be really painful, but Mm. it hasn't, but is enough to make you think it has. And then we can go behind the scenes and see, you know, the drug is still working, it's still doing its job, but this other bit of the brain is now driving what we call nocebo effects. And that negative expectation is enough to make you really think that you're still in as much pain as you were at the start, when actually certain other bits of the brain have been switched off because the drug is in there. And so these are the sort of fun experiments we can do that, again, they're fun to do scientifically because you discover lots about what the brain does, but they're important therapeutically because it proves that expectation is really powerful in the therapeutic outcome. And um, and this, you know, we've been able to translate, you know, very rapidly into very interesting areas, which, again, the listeners would be probably surprised to hear. But in surgical experiments where or surgical operations where uh, people are doing surgeries and um, for a lot of surgeries where the point of the surgery is to maybe alleviate pain, um, unlike drug discovery, where there's always a control arm or a placebo-controlled arm. In, in surgery, there isn't one. Uh, there's no sham surgery because of the risks of 
supposedly giving somebody an anaesthetic and doing an operation, but not actually doing the operation. Right, right. But latterly, there's been several experiments being done, and I've been involved with one with my colleagues here in Oxford, a very common shoulder surgery. And my uh, surgical colleagues were very brave and said, you know what, I'm not sure that actually what we're doing mechanistically has any effect. It's probably placebo. This hmm. has taken 10 years to do the study, a large clinical trial, and basically the outcome was the surgery is actually doing nothing. When you actually wow. do the, the placebo surgery, there's no difference. So That's this so is important because, again, it, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely amazing. So, of course, you know, this is not a popular result to publish. Um, you right. know, there's a lot of dis heated discussion, as you could imagine. Yeah. But it's important because it, again, illustrates, I think, to the patients and to the community and to the clinical community that these factors like expectation, which is built on what placebos are doing, work and they're powerful. Of course, now we have to decide ethically, well, if that's how you elicit pain relief, maybe we should do placebo surgeries, um, right. you know, and that's a, that's a bigger discussion. But, you wow. know, that's where we're sort of the conversation sort of at this point left and we have to continue. So that seems such a powerful thing, um, you know, tying this, this sort of expectation into whether or not you're going to experience pain, having that actual impact on what you feel. I, I mean, what do you think that means in terms of us being able to self-regulate? I mean, could we just start telling ourselves we're not going to feel pain? Or then you think about that sort of makes me think about, you know, monks who sort of meditate and, and, and yeah. immediately uh, think of the monk from uh, who pro was protesting um, the occupation in Vietnam who lit himself on fire and mm -hmm. just sat there and, yep. and burned and died yeah. and didn't flinch. I mean, are there ways that we can? I mean, this is a little bit outside your expertise, but, you know, um, what are your thoughts about that? Just this self-regulating by using yeah. your own expectations. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, sort of, you know, the, the capacity of the brain to change the experience is huge. And, and it can do it, you know, one of the most common routes by which, say, the placebo effect or expectation um, mediates what I call free analgesia is the same as when people are distracted. People are probably, listeners, you know, have done sports, they've hurt themselves in the high arousal excitement of maybe winning the point. They didn't notice, you know, they'd hurt themselves and then afterwards it hurts. So these sort of experiences of where you realize, wow, how come I didn't feel it at the time? It's because we've got this very, very powerful system in our brains, an old brain, it's called the brainstem, where we've got this, I call it good cop, bad cop. And this good cop basically inhibits the signals. It just stops them coming in to the brain so you don't feel it. And this is, in fact, the system that the placebo effect and expectation hijacks. So it's this beautiful old system and it's this wonderful set of machinery that we've all got that we can tap into and we tap into it um, to block pain so mm. that you're not having to deal with the pain because there's something more threatening or more important to be dealing with. So the, the brain's very efficient. It's got that system, which is powerfully the system that is what expectation, placebo, distraction, fight or flight taps into. But then it's got this sort of additional system, which is what I'd call sort of reappraisal. So the analogy would be if people are runners and maybe, you know, I've, I've done a couple of marathons and after I've done, say, a long training run, next day my muscles are aching, really sore. But that's nice pain. I mm. like that pain because I'm, I'm appraising that pain as something that's positive. Mm. It means I've done a good training run. I'm reaching my target. My goal is there. It's positive for me because I've reinterpreted what that pain means and not being something negative, which, of course, naturally it is for the, for the patients. But what we can show experimentally is we can hedonically flip it and, and reappraise it into something positive. Hmm. And then we can work out with brain imaging how that happens. Wow. So going back to your monks and the meditation, hypnosis, sort of these alternative ways that one can, uh, that we know historically people have used to help with their suffering. Now we know why they do it and why it is 
not fake. It is true. It's physiological. It plays out through networks that now we can do imaging experiments to find out how did that work. And it turns out all these have, you know, very um, interesting avenues by which they activate specific networks that can produce and drive, you know, benefit. It can either drive absolute analgesia or it can change the subjective value of what the experience is and sort of hedonically flip it. And um, and so I think that's what's been, again, very interesting because it just, again, well, no, not only just proves that these things do work and they're not just made up, um, but of course it gives us insight as to, well, how can we now unlock that? What would be the, the keys that we could use to mm. unlock those networks in the brain mm. for patients so that they can get that free analgesia or that free way of reinterpreting things? And that's where working with uh, clinical psychologists who uh, are trying to, again, um, use what's coming out from the science in this context to help their patients access some of this and help them cope and deal with their pain better um, is where there's a sort of win-win combination. So, wow. so what you're saying is absolutely spot on. Uh, you know, we, we, we're on our journey to understand how some of these long historic, you know, things his, that have been done in history have been used like the monks meditating. And, um, and, we're, um, you know, we're now starting to understand a little bit how it is that that has come about. And then, of course, we can exploit that, hopefully going forward for better therapies. Wow. So many, so many interesting things to talk about. We do have to take a break, though. I just want to say quickly before we go to break, uh, the work that you're doing is uh, or could be used eventually, possibly in court cases where they're um, they're talking about, you know, how do you quantify someone's pain? So if somebody is trying to prove pain and suffering, there might be a way to do that through some of your research. So I want to say a quick thank you to you, Irene Tracy. You're the head of the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Oxford. Thank you so much for joining us, Irene. You're very welcome. All the best to you. Coming up, we'll have two guests to talk about a rare condition called man-on-fire syndrome, which causes a person to feel intense pain almost all the time. Please stick around. back. Thanks so much for joining this afternoon. We're talking about pain this hour. Our next guest has spent decades seeking a treatment for people suffering from chronic neuropathic pain by studying people with a rare disease called inherited erythromalacia. Well, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Also known as man on fire syndrome. Um, joining him is a woman who's lived with this rare and challenging syndrome her entire life. So with us, we have Stephen Waxman. He's a professor of neurology at the Yale Medical School and Veterans Affairs Connecticut Medical Center. He's also author of Chasing Men on Fire, the story of the, story of the search for a pain gene. So thanks so much for joining us, uh, Stephen. Glad to be here. And also is Pamela Costa. She's a psychology professor at Tacoma Community College in Washington. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, and she's lived with this inherited erythromalacia for her entire life. Pamela, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. So, Stephen, let's start with you. Just Can you just describe um, what this condition is, otherwise known as man-on-fire syndrome? What kind of people are affected? Is it genetic? What are some of the symptoms? Sure. Uh, erythromalacia is a very rare disorder, and about 5 or 10% of people with, with erythromalgia have the inherited form. Mm. Inherited erythromalgia, IEM, uh, it's very rare but a very important disease, and as you uh, noted, it's also called the man-on-fire syndrome. People with inherited erythromalgia feel searing, burning pain 
in response to mild warmth, warmth that most of us feel as pleasant or that we don't feel at all. And so wearing shoes, putting on a sweater, uh, sitting in a room at 70 degrees Fahrenheit can trigger uh, severe excruciating pain. Uh, and it's described by people with this disorder as feeling as if hot lava had been poured into their mm. bodies. Oof, ouch. Uh, Pamela, you're talking on the phone with us. How is talking on the phone? Is that something that is uh, a painful experience? Do you have to have us on speakerphone, or what's th what's that like? I, I automatically put uh, people on speakerphone because the phone can become warm after a few minutes. Mm. So that's pretty automatic. I didn't even realize that I had done it. <laughs> but yes. That's what you do, yeah. I have you on speaker. <laughs> well, so that's, I guess there are certain things you probably have to do to accommodate your life. So, I mean, can you just walk us through what, what sort of things do you have to do like that uh, to sort of accommodate your condition? Well, having the rare or inherited form of erythromalgia kind of has afforded me with the natural or more unconscious kind of daily adaptation um, by, I've always had to make these constant adjustments without any kind of awareness that I was doing it over mm. the years. So I didn't recognize that, uh, for example, I would plan out my days as a young child um, walking to school, um, where were the puddles that I could put my feet in, mm. in route to the 10 blocks to school in Southern California. Wow. Um, I didn't realize that other people failed to do the same thing because I didn't have a diagnosis at the time. Right. Um, it wasn't until... I was a preteen that we received the diagnosis from the Mayo Clinic. So um, kind of being unaware of having this disease and assuming everybody else was on fire, if you will, like me, I just kind of um, adapted. And so I wasn't um, real cognizant of the little kind of minor, little micro adjustments that I would make throughout my day until I finally just asked my family, you know, what do I do differently than you? And I know I have to plan from the moment I wake up how long it takes to, say, recover from my shower. So mm -hmm. I have to take a cold shower, which I still feel cold, so it's uncomfortable but mm -hmm. not painful. So I choose the cold shower on a cold day even over a warm shower. So then the shower stimulates my pain, so I have to adjust for 20 minutes to up to about three hours of hurting after that. Mm. And then I have to plan for how far I'm going to have to walk because movement and mobility triggers uh, where I have to go. So um, if I have to go outside, that means wearing clothes and wearing, you know, more than uh, just a T-shirt and, and shorts. Yeah. Um, it also requires wearing shoes, which I don't own any socks or enclosed shoes. I only wear um, very light sandals and that's difficult to navigate through the snow. Um, <laughs> mm, and yeah, so that kind of presents a different problem than summertime, which for most of recent Malaysia patients is very challenging because of the heat. Mm -hmm. um, and as Dr. Waxman said, it does. It feels like we're on fire. I'm burning constantly from the inside out. And while that constant hum or burn is there, there are certain events that if I don't control them, and some are totally uncontrollable, like a warm building, um, throughout my day, it's exacerbated even further and compounded and makes recovery even more difficult. So what was it like growing up not having a, a diagnosis? Um, you know, for, for people who go to the doctor with chronic pain, not your condition, but have chronic pain, often have a hard time convincing the doctor they have chronic pain. I mean, I, I can only imagine what that was like for you. Oh, it... Uh, <laughs> Numerous doctors over decades, um, in fact, um, 
despite the fact that I had the Mayo Clinic diagnosis when I was 12, um, and I carried that letter around with me wherever I went, um, because of the rare, um, you know, because it was so rare, and at the time when I was um, younger, I didn't have the physical, um, the outward signs, so it was just what I could subjectively explain. I'm burning from the inside out, my hands, my feet, my face, my legs burn. Um, I didn't have the redness at the time. So the erythema or the redness um, didn't start to really show until I was in my 20s. So not having any outward sign of, of pathology and then having this, re- you know, this report of this rare kind of um, strange syndrome, I've had numerous, probably countless, over 30 or 40 physicians, including mm. world-renowned healthcare providers that I was fortunate enough to have access to. So head of you know, rheumatology at UCLA, Stanford, and so on. Um, it really just would be kind of just this roadblock every time I went, I get my hopes up for this new specialist is going to know what this is. Mm-hmm. And even if they knew what it was by, say, looking it up and, and reading about it, um, they still would deny that I had it. So wow. up until I was in my mid-20s, it was a psychosomatic disorder. But Yeesh. I could thank that for, you know, allowing me to pursue psychology because that's huh. how that was my own way of trying to figure out, well, if it's psychosomatic, that's the direction I'd better go academically and professionally to find my own cure, if well, you, you will. You definitely uh, made some lemonade out of that lemon. Um, <laughs> I, I want to turn to Stephen Waxman. Can you, Stephen, can you just explain what's happening uh, with Pamela's body and her brain that's leading to this, to this, um, to this condition? Sure. Um, inherited erythromyalgia, uh, in many ways, serves as a model disease. And uh, for scientists like me who are uh, trying to develop new treatments for chronic neuropathic pain, uh, it's it's been a model disease that has taught us some very important lessons. And, and that's important because in developing a new medicine, you have to target the right molecule in the body. Uh, and uh, here, uh, the man on fire syndrome, inherited erythromyalgia, has pointed us to a master molecule hmm. that controls pain. Uh, and so it points to a new target uh, that hopefully will will uh, enable the development of a new class of pain medications. And, and, and the story is that uh, having done a lot of work at the laboratory bench uh, on pain and pain signaling neurons, uh, in 2003, my team and I here at Yale launched a worldwide search for families with inherited neuropathic pain. Okay. Uh, as a neurologist, I can tell you, we see neuropathic pain all the time, but we never see families. So we knew that if families existed, they'd be very rare. Uh, and so why <laughs> why search the, the globe for rare families? And the reason is that rare genetic, rare familial diseases can teach us lessons about common disorders. An example is the development of the statin drugs, mm-hmm. which have been a major uh, advance in public health. These drugs were developed on the basis of studies on very rare families with inherited hypercholesterolemia. The genes in those families pointed the way to the cholesterol story hmm. and enabled the development of the statin drugs. Okay. So we were looking for a pain gene, a, a master gene for pain, uh, and in 2005, we identified that gene, uh, largely from studies in Pam's family. Wow. And 
we learned from studies uh, of that sort that a molecule called NAV1.7 is a master regulator for pain. It's also called SCN9A. Uh, now, NAV1.7 is a molecular battery. It enables pain-signaling nerve cells in our peripheral nerves to generate uh, impulses. And, and so it, it controls pain signaling. And families like PAMs carry mutations that make NAV1.7 overactive. It's, it's sort of like turning up the volume knob on a radio. Hmm. But in this case, NAV1.7 is a volume knob on our pain-signaling nerve cells. So in a, a family like PAMS, it's as if the volume knob has been turned all the way up in pain-signaling nerves, and that makes these uh, pain-signaling nerve cells shriek when they should be whispering, and that causes extreme uh, uh, pain. Ouch. Ouch. It may be hurt thinking about it. Um, well, maybe the gene, instead of having this uh, num numerical letter name, could be called uh, the Costa gene, the Costa family gene. Yeah, give them some credit. It's <laughs> called the Waxman gene. The Waxman gene, <laughs> the Waxman-Costa gene. Um, well, can we uh, talk a little bit more about your family, Pam? So if it is genetic, um, is this something that your family members have? Did your parents have it? You have cousins? Like, uh, yes. Tell us about uh, that. My mother, my grandfather, and... 14 or more cousins on my um, maternal side, yes. Wow. And so is it as extreme as your, as your case? Or they experience the same types of pain, or is it different for them? Um, it, they experience the same sensation of burning, yes. Um, and, in fact, um, some of the, um, the studies going back, in term, the pedigree studies going back, um, I think up to about five generations, in fact, um, do, you know, demonstrate in terms of, you know, patient description, the same intensity and description and what it feels like and the avoidance of, of, of heat and movement and so on. However, within just um, my kind of small family cohort, if you will, there's a, a lot of variation in terms of um, intensity and frequency, um, which probably makes it even more difficult um, be, uh, for physicians to understand, um, outside of Dr. Waxman and his team, of course. Um, but uh, it's, um, so my mother, for example, doesn't have it nearly as um, badly as I do. So that is why she failed to really recognize it until uh, much later on when she noticed that I was aversive to shoes and socks, for example, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that um, PE at school or recess at school in Southern California was very, very challenging for me, and my teachers were concerned about me not wanting to be to participate, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an understatement. <laughs> wow. um, so it, it, when the Mayo Clinic first identified my family in Alabama, they assumed they they reached out to my mother and I because they assumed that um, from recollection of my family, my mother's family, the, of her experience as a child, they had an assumption that perhaps she and I probably had some experience with it. Little did they know that um, we were suffering on the West Coast while they were in Alabama, suffering just as much, but being investigated already by the Mayo Clinic researchers uh, so back in the 70s. Stephen, uh, real quick, um, we have to go to break, but I want to get your thoughts on where you are with your work now. Um, what, what's, where are you with clinical trials, and uh, you know, where, what's, uh, what's on the horizon for you and your, your work? Well, uh, it's an incredibly exciting time. Uh, uh, the, 
the mutation in Pam's family is what we call a gain-of-function mutation, an overactive uh, NAV 1.7 channel causing severe pain. We now also know there are other families with loss of function of NAV 1.7. They don't make the NAV 1.7 channel, and these uh, remarkable and very rare families feel no pain. So painless fractures, painless burns, painless tooth extractions, painless childbirth. So we're in the unusual situation of having both sides of the coin, gain of function and loss of function mutations, and that has propelled a lot of interest in the biopharmaceutical industry. Uh, And so our goal is the development of new medications that can block NAV 1.7, hopefully as a treatment for many forms of, of neuropathic pain painful diabetic neuropathy, shingles neuropathy, the neuropathy that uh, can occur with cancer chemotherapy and some patients opt to stop their chemotherapy because the neuropathy is so painful, Mm. Uh, pain after nerve injury and pain after traumatic limb amputation. Uh, And importantly, the NAV1.7 molecule does not do anything important in the brain and so medications that block it will not have brain-related side effects such as double vision, loss of balance, confusion, or sleepiness. And so our team at Yale is working with the biopharmaceutical industry, and the first early clinical trials have provided very encouraging results. Uh, These have involved tiny, small numbers of patients, but we have hints. We have hints that blocking of NAV 1.7 may reduce uh, or totally ameliorate pain. So wow. it's going to take time, and by time I mean, I mean years, not months, and I can't say how many years because this work goes slowly. Mm. And of course, there are no guarantees, but I am uh, very optimistic. Wow. Wow. Makes me feel good again. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Stephen Waxman, uh, your neurology professor at Yale Medical School and the Veterans Affairs Connecticut Medical Center. Uh, thank you for joining us. And Pam Acosta, uh, psychology professor at Tacoma Community College. Thank you so much, Pam and Stephen, for joining us. My pleasure. When we come back from the break, we're going to switch species, and we're going to talk about whether fish feel pain. Stay with us. Good afternoon. I'm David Rowe, sitting in for Colin McEnroe Show. Today, we're talking about pain. We are switching uh, species. We've been talking about pain in human beings, but obviously we're not the only species that feel pain. Um, It might come to a surprise to some listeners that fish actually experience pain. I know I grew up not thinking that, but uh, some reading about it has changed my mind. Now there's little doubt among researchers that uh, fish feel pain. And they also, uh, there's evidence that they feel fear and many of the emotions that we tend to only associate with people. Um, yet, at the same time, we, millions of fish are killed every single year by suffocation in nets or barbed hooks. Um, commercial fishing is, is a big part of this, uh, this, this of, of why that is happening. And with almost 3 billion people globally relying on fish as their primary source of protein, maybe it's time to eat busfish or kill them in a more humane way. So joining us to kind of suss through all that is Carl Safina. He is a professor for nature and humanity at Stony Brook University, and he also runs the Safina Center. He's also author of several books, including Song for the Blue Ocean and most recently Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. Carl Safina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great pleasure to be here. 
So can you just maybe explain for listeners who uh, might have been surprised by that opening statement about fish feeling pain, um, why have we traditionally felt that fish have not felt pain and what sort of uh, research has led us to believe, what? wait a minute, they actually do? Well, I think that why, if you're asking for a logical answer about why we have believed fish don't feel pain, it's that it's very convenient to believe fish don't feel pain. Hmm. It, if you look at how they act, um, it's very logical to assume that they do feel pain and fear because they act fearful in dangerous situations and they seem to be in pain when you would be in pain. So um, we've just told ourselves a story that they can't feel pain or don't feel anything. But um, if you actually look at their nervous systems or you look at the research, you realize that they do feel and they feel pain and they they feel um some basic emotions like stress and fear and things like that. So is it more than just reacting? Do we know that they're actually having, like, I guess, what is it, some of the evidence that they're feeling pain is that they, they will um, develop behaviors that will make them pain averse or they'll do things that they'll avoid the pain. So do we know that it's not just they're not just reacting to stimuli, that they're actually experience the, experiencing pain as we know it, as we understand it? Well, first of all, I mean, pain is a reaction to stimuli. It's a, it's a sensation that is formed in the brain, and then um, based on that sensation, the, it, it is, uh, it's a sensation to dangerous or harmful stimuli, and then you react in an appropriate way, which is you move away from the harmful or dangerous stimuli. Um, fish not only do the same thing, but when you do experiments to try to dial that down a little bit, you see behavior that is essentially impossible to explain any other way. For instance, hmm. you, you take a trout, you inject into its lip um, a, uh, basically a saline saltwater substance that shouldn't make them feel anything, and they don't do anything. You inject into their lip another substance that is known to cause a stinging sensation in humans, and they start rubbing their lip on rocks and on the sides of their tank as if it is irritating them or stinging them. So um, trying to explain that in a different way is uh, impossible as far as I know because nobody's been able to explain it in a different way, and I can't think of another way to explain it. Now, I, now so if we, if we can agree that fish experience pain, is it... I guess it would be virtually impossible to say that they experience it as we do because our brains are so differently. But how is there a way that you could characterize their experience of it? Is that possible, or how, how do we know? Like, how different is it, or how similar is it to the pain that we experience? Is there a way that we can even know that? Well, I I think the uh, the best answer is it's somewhere in the same envelope that we experience pain. Um, in, in other words. Uh, Different people experience a different range of pain or um, experience range of pain more acutely or less acutely to the, the same stimuli. Some people just are more sensitive and some people are less sensitive to certain stimuli as far as how much pain they experience or how much they are willing to tolerate or, or what they report as extreme pain. But their brains are not that similar, not that dissimilar, not that different from Hours we our our brain is basically an elaborated fish brain. So the most fundamental things like um, danger and getting away from danger and uh, damage and uh, pain are likely to be rather similar. I think that fish probably experience 
a pain in a way that we would recognize as a pain. And as I mentioned about those experiments, they, they act like we would act. Mm-hmm. So um, while I don't, uh, you can't say exactly how they experience pain, um, you know, for that matter, I, I don't know exactly how you experience pain, but I know that, I know that we all have a sensation of pain. So sure. I, my, my feeling is, it's pretty similar. They act as though it's pretty similar, and um, that's that's where I think the information um, puts us at this point. So we only got about a minute left, but I wanted you to oh, touch God. on. Yeah, I know it goes by quick. <laughs> I know. Sorry about that. Um, but I wanted you to touch on the, the global fishing industry. I mean, if 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 fishing generally um, is causing pain to fish, I mean, are there more humane ways that we could be going about this? Well, at the scale that we kill trillions of fish in gigantic nets, there there is really it's not a humane it's not a humane enterprise. Um, the way that we kill fish that are raised in fish farms, uh, yes, we have much more control over how they are killed because they're generally killed individually. And in a couple of countries in Europe, they actually do now have um, both some regulations about how fish need to be slaughtered. They have to be anesthetized or stunned first, Sim- similar to the way, um, uh, uh, you know, hoofed air-breathing farm animals in this country have to be stunned first. Hmm. So, but then if, the, if, you're, if you're talking about eating farm fish, that raises a whole other set of ethical questions because now these fish are, you know, not living a free life. I, I know you've written about your experience mm-hmm. in, the, in yeah. a fish farm. Everything raises a lot of ethical questions, and it's... Um, you know, living is sort of an ethical obstacle course, and you have to try to pick a way through that, I think, that um, involves um, an amount of uh, ethical compromise that you can live with, because there's there's no free lunch. I was reading about the uh, the Japanese fish kill method, the ikijimi. Is that something for personal fishermen? Is that something you recommend personal fishermen do when they catch fish, to kill the fish in a humane way? I actually still go fishing, um, and the way that I've approached it has changed a bit based on what I know. I try to make it very quick, and I try to kill the fish um, fast or painlessly. Uh, I think you can kill a fish painlessly by slipping it into ice water, and since they're they're not warm-blooded animals, so their their temperature cools down, and then that's that's the end for them. So. I try to do that rather than just let them expire out in the air gasping to death. Mm. Well, Carl Safina, we have run out of time, but thank you so much for, for talking to us about fish and how they experience pain. Thank you, uh, your professor at Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University. Thank you, Carl. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, a very quick pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next time we'll have some more time. I also want to thank those who made today's show very, very special. Our guests, Irene Tracy, Stephen Waxman, Pamela Costa, and you just heard from Carl Safina. But a very special thanks to producer Betsy Kaplan, who without this, without her help, none of this would have been possible, or technical producer Kyle Wolf, who also nailed it at the boards, and our intern Kayla Thomas. I'm David DeRoche, in for Colin McEnroe's show, in for Colin McEnroe on tomorrow's show, Are we hardwired to dance? We'll rebroadcast an old favorite.